Welcome to Inside IR, a podcast series by Herbert Smith Freehills that explores the latest developments in the Australian industrial relations landscape. Hello and welcome to Inside IR, the Australian industrial relations podcast, the series that arms HR, IR and legal professionals with the latest industrial relations thinking. My name's Rowan Doyle and I'm a partner in the industrial relations team at Herbert Smith Freehills. And I'm very excited today to be joined by partner and colleague Drew Pearson from our Sydney office. Hi, Hi Drew. Thanks Great to have you, you on board. Your, uh, your first appearance on Inside IR. How are you feeling about that, Drew? Oh, uh, look, it's the old saying, uh, long-time listener, first-time caller. So happy to be here. <laughs> Great. The first of many appearances coming up, I'm, I'm sure. Now, for those who haven't worked with Drew before, Drew has uh, been around a long time in the IR space. He's been working um, in IR since 2006 with particular expertise in mining, construction, energy and financial services. And in fact, uh, spent the early part of his career working in Perth for, I think, seven years, Drew. Sure did. So yep. and I think now you're over east, yeah. as uh, those in <laughs> Perth would, would call it, in, in Sydney. So yep. um, really great diverse industry experience. We're looking forward to your insights on the couch today, Drew. Uh, we've spent the last few episodes of Inside IR systematically stepping through the reforms that have uh, been created through the Secure Jobs Better Pay Act and talking through the implications of those. And we've made the point that those implications, particularly when it comes to bargaining, are really significant. They, in effect, turn the enterprise bargaining system on its head. The tactics and strategies that have worked in the past aren't going to work anymore. And uh, employers in particular need to have a fresh look at those and, and build them bespoke for this new enterprise bargaining regime. And one of the biggest reasons for this, Drew, is the intractable bargaining jurisdiction. Uh, that's one of the biggest reasons that enterprise bargaining tactics and strategy from the past will not work in the new regime. So on today's episode of Inside IR, we are going to discuss the new intractable bargaining regime. I'll learn how to say that as the episode goes on. Um, and as we know, that involves the Fair Work Commission's new power to end bargaining and arbitrate terms and conditions of employment in certain circumstances. Now, we'll do that on today's episode by covering three things. First, we'll cover the process. What are the prerequisites for accessing this new jurisdiction, this new regime, the Fair Work Commission? We'll then second explore how we think the Fair Work Commission will go about arbitrating contested claims. Will they agree with the position being advanced by the employer or will they, they agree with the position advanced by the union? Or will they come up with something in between the two? And then third and finally, we'll work through some of our tips on how we think employers should be preparing for this new jurisdiction and for bargaining in this new environment. But before we cover those three things, Drew, just think it's important to, to reflect briefly on why this is such a big deal. Why do we say this is going to change the enterprise bargaining environment so significantly? Now, as we know, these new Fair Commission powers they enable the Commission to arbitrate the end of bargaining and effectively impose terms and conditions on employers and employees. Now, the key point that needs to be understood here is that this means that employers, in particular, have less control in enterprise bargaining. Because if we reflect on the current laws, this new regime commences in June 2023. So if we look at the previous regime, the existing regime without these reforms, employers essentially have ultimate control yeah. of the bargaining process. Employers often look at me funny when I say that, but strictly speaking, they do because only employers can put an enterprise agreement to vote. 
They can never be compelled to do so. Only employers can choose when to do that, if to do that, and if they do do it, what terms and conditions will be contained in that agreement that is put to vote. So they have essentially full control yeah. over that process. There are only two minor exceptions to that. There's two other ways that bargaining could conclude in under the current regime prior to these intractable bargaining state, uh, changes. And those two ways were through the issuing of a serious breach declaration, yep. which I should say never happened <laughs> over the course of the 13 plus years that those provisions sat in the Act. There was never one serious breach declaration, serious and sustained breaches of the good faith bargaining requirements. And the other way was through industrial action. There being actual or threatened uh, harm through industrial action that reached a requisite threshold that enabled the Fair Work Commission to terminate industrial action. That could then lead to a post-termination uh, negotiating period and then ultimately a workplace determination. Now, that power was only used 11 times over those 13 plus years that those provisions sat in the Fair Work Act. Only 11 workplace determinations were made utilising that power. And you think about how many bargaining rounds there have been Absolutely. over that period. I mean, it, it, it pales into insignificance. Yeah. So the point there is, bar those, that very minor exception, employers had full control. Now they don't. There is, there is now, post-June 2023, a new power for unions, employees, and also employers, of course, yeah. we'll talk about that as well, but unions and employees to apply to the Fair Work Commission and end bargaining against the wishes of the employer. Now, that changes everything. It changes the way you employers need to prepare for bargaining. It changes the way employers will engage with their workforce yep. and unions. It changes the way that employers will engage with the Fair Work Commission. And the reason I say that is this, it comes down to a very simple point. The old objective, if you boil it down to its most simplest proposition in enterprise bargaining, the objective of the employer was to convince employees mm -hmm. and bargaining representatives that the deal on the table that being, was being offered by the employer was the best deal available. There wasn't more being held back that might come out on the table subject yeah. to reasonable pressure through industrial action. There wasn't more. This was the best deal available. That was the old objective. Now, under these new laws, the, that's not enough. You, you also need to convince employees and unions that the deal being offered is better than what they can reasonably expect to get from the Fair Work Commission. That's right. So there is that extra layer, that extra dynamic, and that really does significantly change the way that you engage with bargaining and your workforce and the planning that sits around it. So um, now that I've convinced everyone that this is important <laughs> and a worthwhile use of our time, uh, we might start, Drew, Drew, with you. If you yeah. could take us through the process. What, what, are the, what are the prerequisites for bargaining representatives accessing this new intractable bargaining regime? Thanks, Rowan. And I think you've hit the nail on the head. This has fundamentally changed the bargaining paradigm. Um, no longer can an employer bargain, work with employees, work with unions and say, you know, this is as far as we're going to go. Mm. There's now an umpire that can step in and actually start setting terms. Um, and that obviously brings up around a whole lot of things to think about. So. Um, the intractable bargaining process really kicks off with uh, bargaining having been going on for some time. Now, nine months is the magic number here. There are various factors depending on how many enterprise agreements uh, are being renegotiated. Uh, but effectively, once you've been negotiating for nine months with an expired agreement um, or the latest of 
the expiring agreements where there's multiple agreements uh, in play, a bargaining rep can apply for an intractable bargaining determination. Um, now, the determination is separate to the workplace determination, so we'll, we'll step through that a little bit later on. Um, the second is that the parties have to have gone through the Section 240 conference process in the Commission. Now, that is something that I know, Rowan, you and I have had a lot of clients who have been involved in that process in more recent times. It's probably really come to the fore in the last five to, to ten years of bargaining. Certainly more common. Yeah, where the parties go to the Commission and the Commission had the ability to um, aid discussions, to conciliate, but there was no um, automatic power for the Commission to arbitrate at the end of the 240 um, process. It was really to bring the parties together. It was an opportunity to kind of hold people to account in a room with the independent umpire there, but who wasn't going to ultimately determine what the agreements are going to uh, say unless the parties consented to an arbitration. Mm. Um, so you have to have participated in that process uh, through the 240. Um, and, and the problem with that consent to the arbitration of that phase is that it still required a vote at the end, didn't it? That's right. Which and is so different to the intractable bargaining Exactly process. right. Yeah. So ultimately the employees still needed to agree to it. It wasn't being taken out of the parties to the agreement who would ultimately um, be you know, voting on the agreement and saying, yes, we want this, no, we don't. And there yeah. are plenty of examples where agreements had been put to the vote at the end of these types of processes and mm. um, the employees ultimately said, no, that's not what we want. Yeah. Um, so again, you know, as Rowan um, indicated, the power has been shifted away from the employer, but there are opportunities there as well. Um, now, condition three, uh, the commission member needs to form the view that there's no reasonable prospect of agreement being reached. Um, now, that is going to be something that a commission is going to really need to put some thought to. And um, nine months for bargaining on a, on a large agreement is really not a lot of time. Mm. Um, when you're thinking about, and we'll come to the preparation, you know, sometimes bargaining meetings are only happening once a month. Yeah. And so nine months in that circumstance of eight or nine meetings on a large agreement covering a large number of employees may not be the ultimate um, decider. You know, you really need to have thrashed out the issues um, and worked through it. And obviously the, the 240 process doesn't have to be a single um, conference in the Commission. It could be no. multiple. <clears throat> and in fact, it often isn't. But, yeah. but also what's interesting with the, the 240 prerequisite, the fact that the parties first have to have gone through this conciliation step, that can happen at any point along that timeline. Yeah. So it doesn't have to wait until after the nine months of negotiations yeah. or nine months post normal expiry. That could happen before. And those those parties, bargaining representatives that might be thinking they want to get to the commission sooner rather than later and yeah. get it arbitrated, you could envisage them commencing the 240 process earlier. But the real big question we were debating before, Drew, is where will the line be drawn on um, this uh, this test, this no reasonable prospect of agreement being reached test. Now, it, it's it's quite you know it's hard to draw a clear line on that. But will the commission expect the parties to go through quite an extensive process, lots of meetings, lots of engagement with the commission? One single conference in a two hundred and forty context won't be sufficient. Right. Will they expect the parties to utilise the tools available to them, such as industrial action, to apply pressure to each other? My personal view is there's a very good chance the Commission will, will apply a very high threshold to that 
and expect, expect the parties to have really shown extensive time investment and extensive use of the tools of bargaining before being willing to make the conclusion that it's not reasonably, uh, there's no reasonable prospect of agreement being reached. I think that's right. And when you think about um, you know, other processes that the Commission runs, even things as simple as an unfair dismissal, mm. conciliation, we do have those types of conciliations. The Commission <clears throat> is holding up to each side, well, this is what you're saying and here is what might happen. Um, so I think that there will be yes um, a bit of a, pressure being a bit applied. of pressure being applied yeah. to really test because ultimately it is a large investment of taxpayer dollars to run through a workplace determination process as we'll get to a little bit later on. So I don't think that it's going to be a a simple one one conciliation party saying no, there's no way we can do this, uh, and the commission saying okay, let's. Let's get off to the full bench for the uh, the arbitration. I so, think that's right. We'll certainly need more than thirteen new commission members if a low threshold was applied. I think because it would be quite a busy. Period. Without a doubt, without a doubt, and I think this comes into condition four, which is the the commission retains an ultimate discretion, um, even if conditions one, two, and three are met. Um, it needs to be reasonable in all the circumstances, which is kind of the classic catch-all for the Fair Work Act where mm. the Commission is left with that ultimate discretion. Um, so even I feel where the parties uh, haven't been able to agree on exactly what's, what issues are in dispute or how, you know, how intractable bargaining has become, I think the Commission will take a fairly pragmatic and reasonable approach to this because ultimately they simply don't have the resources and our system is not set up. Uh, to enable mass arbitration of agreements. We're not talking about quick hearings here uh, by any stretch. No, you're not talking days, you're sort of talking weeks depending yeah. on the issues that are, that are in play. But yeah. before we move on to what happens next, Drew, so you've mentioned the four conditions that, yeah. that need to be met and they are there needs to have at least been nine months of bargaining and at least post nine months post nominal expiry of existing agreements. Um, condition two is that the Fair Commission has to have um, has to have engaged in a conciliation process under Section 240 in respect of the agreement. Condition three was that there's no reasonable prospect of agreement being reached if the Commission doesn't intervene and make the declaration. And then finally, condition four, the Commission needs to be satisfied it's not reasonable in all the circumstances. Now, we should add that this is in addition to the existing industrial action workplace right. determination process. So those provisions that I mentioned before, the 11 workplace determinations, terminating and suspending industrial action, all of that remains in the yeah. Act. And we should also say that this process also applies to multi-enterprise agreements. Yes. So both single and multi, and it's also an application that can be made by any bargaining representatives. That's right. So that there might be one issue that's come up, Drew, is I've had some employers say, well, this might present some opportunities to actually resolve bargaining in circumstances where they haven't been able to get employees to vote up agreements. This might be um, a release valve or an exit strategy that some employers might want to pursue themselves. Right. I mean, do you have any reflections on that, Drew? Look, I think um, ultimately the Commission's going to have to consider kind of where to from here when they're at this point in, in time. Um, if the Commission considers it's appropriate to make the, uh, the determination um, that bargaining has become intractable, they do have the ability to, again, put you back into a period of kind of forced negotiations. Mm -hmm. um, so again, even once we get over those first four hurdles, it's not the automatic. Job's not over. Yeah. It's, yeah, and I think particularly um, in the multi-employer bargaining space, the likelihood is that 
the Commission will want to see that the parties have really tried to narrow the scope of the issues that remain between them in bargaining, mm. um, because that, of course, will narrow the scope of the ultimate arbitration. Yeah. And you can imagine multi-enterprise, this process will be just far more complex yeah. just by virtue of the different parties uh, engaged in it. But um, I think, look, when, when I've debated that issue with clients, I think much depends, the attraction to employers of making proactive applications in this space very much depends on what they think the Federal Commission will do with it. Yeah. And we'll come to that in a moment, but that's, that's a very big factor because uh, employers, at least as a starting point, don't necessarily need to go down this path because remembering they've got the power to put agreements to vote. Yes. They've got the power to at least try and convince the workforce to vote up agreements. So necessarily, that's always uh, plan A. This mm. can only ever be plan B, C or, or perhaps D for employers. But um, I think we should explore um, how, how confident employers can be of positive outcomes based on how we think the Fair Work Commission will arbitrate contested claims. But we'll come to that a little bit, little bit later. If we assume, Drew, that each of those four conditions yep. that you spoke through have been met and the Fair Work Commission makes the intractable bargaining declaration, what, what happens next? Um, next, the declaration is made. It either goes to arbitration or to the, uh, the bargaining period. Let's assume that we get through any bargaining period and we're into the arbitration space. The, the Commission um, can only include in the workplace determination uh, the coverage term, the core term, so your nominal expiry date, all the things that we always have to have in, in the agreement and the mandatory terms. Yep. Um, and then they also have to include any agreed terms. So I think, um, and again, we'll come back to the practical bit at the end, but making sure that our record keeping and bargaining is to an evidentiary standard is going to be really important here um, as you work through, you know, what is truly agreed and, and not. Um, the, the Commission also then needs to consider any matters that are still an issue. Um, and so the relevant time for determination of that is either at the end of a bargaining period post um, the, the declaration being made or if you, if you haven't had that at the time of the application. Yeah. So, I mean, that raises some really important tactical questions yeah. because, so the, the full bench, these workplace determinations are heard, must be heard before a full bench. Full bench has to include those mandatory terms that we spoke, out, we spoke about, relatively uncontroversial. But the real issue is, well, what's then left? Yes. What terms have been agreed? They have to go in. What terms haven't been agreed but are outstanding as issues that have been on the bargaining table? And it's those that will be subject to the arbitration. So to your point, Drew, needing good evidence as to what was agreed, what wasn't agreed, but was on the table. And I think that's the key is what was on the table. Um, you know, I think unions have been very good at having very expansive logs yeah, of claims. Everything's on the table. Everything's on the table. And sometimes the, the, the evidence of good faith bargaining, for example, is, well, we had 50 claims and now we're down to 30. And so clearly we're, we're negotiating and yeah. bargaining in good faith. I think here employers need to think about what gets put on the table and when. Yes, yes, that's right. From their perspective as well. Yeah. Because otherwise you might not be left at the arbitration phase with simply 12 union-led claims, nothing really on the table from the employer, just hoping not to go backwards too much. That's right. That's not a very good negotiating no. position <laughs> because you can only go backwards. So uh, I think... Yeah, you're right. That raises some really important questions. We'll come to tips in a minute. Yeah. But um, on claim development for the employer side, what are some claims the employers actually want to pursue? Not not just defensive yeah. claims, 
Um, but actually some offensive and proactive measures that they'd like to pursue as part of the bargaining. It's important they're still on the table at That's the right. end That's to make right. for a fair arbitration at that end of the process. But your, your point also drew about evidence of um, agreement. That raises an important tactical issue because people make concessions as bargaining goes right. on. But there's lots of different ways to make concessions and reach agreement on individual components. You can agree just simpliciter. Mm. We're agreed, we'll move on, that's going in the agreement regardless. Or you can say, well, I'll agree to that, but subject to you agreeing to X, Y, and Z. Or maybe it's subject to the whole deal. But that, that seems to be quite an important part of this process. I think it is, and I don't think mm. that there's necessarily an easy answer. Mm. Um, you know, in some bargaining rounds, it will be fine to just agree and move on. In others, you know, the financial outcome of the deal will depend on what efficiencies mm. and improvements the employer achieves through bargaining. And so again, coming back, your ability to show what is going into, what is the business case for making concessions throughout the agreement. Even if the matters are agreed, you need to be able to then rely on those for the final sticky points in a way that prior to the 6th of June, employers have been able to say, well, you know what, we're this far along and we, we've gone as far as we can, but ultimately this this deal doesn't work for us and we're not going to put it to the vote. Yeah. Um, so now it's really the stopgap has fallen away and you can have the umpire come in and yeah. and, and deal with it. So Rowan, when we get to that point, what what's the Commission going to be looking at in the arbitration space? Really, really good question. And that's really the key question for employers, any employers considering proactively making this application as opposed to being the respondent to it, being led by the union, really needs to have a clear view on what they think the Commission will do when it comes to contested claims. So remembering we're not worried about agreed claims, they're going to go in to the determination. What we're talking about here is the contested yeah. issues, the issues that have been tabled by each party and not agreed the Fair Work Commission is going to have to balance those respective positions and ultimately arrive at a view as to what should go in the workplace determination. How do they do that, Drew? Well, there are factors in the Act that the Fair Work Commission, the full bench, must take into account in making this assessment. And save for one exception, which I'll come to, those factors haven't changed. They're, mm -hmm. they're the same factors that were applied in the context of those 11 industrial action related workplace determinations I've mentioned. And they'll be the same here. And I'll read through them because they're quite important yeah. and we'll come back to them when we start talking about tips uh, at the end of this session. Those factors are these, the merits of the case, perhaps an obvious one. And I'll, I'll come back to that later when it comes to justifying positions in bargaining, because it's really important. Second is the interests of employers and employees who will be covered by the determination, the public interest, how productivity might be improved in the enterprise or enterprises that are concerned with the workplace determination, the extent to which the conduct of the bargaining representatives for the agreement was reasonable during the agreement. So those other factors I just mentioned yeah. are more about the merits and, and the um, consequences of particular content. That's more about the conduct of the parties during the process. So that's important as well. Yeah. We'll come back to that one when we come to tips. Also, the extent to which the bargaining representatives for the agreement concerned have complied with the good faith bargaining requirements. Again, that's not about content. No. That, that's about behaviour at the bargaining table. And then finally, incentives to continue to bargain at a later time. So 
So we don't want an outcome that's going to disincentivize either side yes. from engaging in bargaining into the future. So um, those factors, the Federal Commission must have regard to all of them. But importantly, there's been one additional factor that's been added through the Secure Jobs Better Pay Reforms. The factor we've mentioned in some of our more higher level uh, Inside IR podcasts on these reforms. And it, it's, in my view, really significant. I'll read it to you. It is the significance to those employers and employees of any arrangements or benefits in an enterprise agreement that immediately before the determination is made applies to any of the employers in respect of the employees. What that means is we need to take into account, the Federal Commission needs to take into account the significance of terms and conditions that are in the enterprise agreement that's being replaced by this workplace determination. Now, you might say, well, what, what does that mean? It's a bit of a curious addition to the factors. I'll read the explanatory memorandum to you because it does shed a little bit of light on this and it's certainly consistent with the language of the actual section. It says, this provision is designed to ensure existing workplace arrangements and benefits are given due consideration by the Fair Work Commission in setting the arbitrated terms of a workplace determination. Now, reading between the lines, what does this do? In my view, it's going to make it extremely difficult for either side to wind back any yeah. important conditions yeah. currently sit in your enterprise agreements. Now, if you couple that with, as we've previously um, explained on previous episodes, you couple that with the fact that it's now almost impossible to terminate enterprise agreements yeah. in bargaining, this further bolsters the fact that once you put a term in an enterprise agreement, particularly an important one that employees or employers are going to care about, wages, rosters, other um, provisions that are of importance, it's going to be very difficult to ever remove it, even if you end up in Fair Work Commission arbitration on these things. So coming back to the point we were debating before, Drew, are employers perhaps going to be incentivised to maybe um, step into this jurisdiction and, and proactively engineer these arbitrations? I think that's going to be a really significant factor that determines the appetite for employers to go down this path. I think that's right. And when you think about, you know, when we're considering whether we want to go down this path mm -hmm. and um, getting into some of those preparatory steps, part of this is understanding your industrial history and mm -hmm. why your enterprise agreements are the way they are, what previous rounds of bargaining have uh, kind of traversed. And particularly, I think, when you're trying to wind back some of the, um, the real business inhibitors in agreements, it's being able to have that history, explain that history and show why over time you have attempted to wind things back or change things and those types of things that mm. is really going to be the first step to getting it right. If, if you don't understand why your agreements are the way they are, you don't understand what the prior uh, rounds of bargaining have mm. discussed, you're really behind the eight ball and I don't think you're in a position to um, use this regime to your benefit. Yeah. I think that's right. And there's going to be, in my view, a huge gulf between the outcomes achieved by those who prepare for this well yeah. and for those that don't. And yeah. like we mentioned at the start, it does require a different mindset um, to bargaining planning, which we'll come to in a moment. But So just reflecting on those factors, Drew, you've got mm -hmm. factors that deal with the merits of the content and the consequences of the content of the determination, um, e.g. impact on uh, productivity, the interests of the employees and employers and general merits of the claim. That's one component of it. Mm -hmm. But you also have the bargaining-related components 
have the parties complied with good faith bargaining? Have they acted reasonably during the course of bargaining? And so it's not just the claim development that's important and justification of each each party's respective positions in bargaining, um, preferably evidence-based justifications, but also the way you go about the bargaining process is important. So if you have, for example, a union that logs ambit claims at the start of bargaining, like the list of 100 and something that I saw on my desk the other day for a particular client. They start with a long ambit list and they uh, are fairly recalcitrant in the sense that they don't um, demonstrate an intent to look at compromises or find solutions to some of the concerns that they're trying to address. Mm -hmm. And if they adopt a very hard bargaining position, might not be enough to breach the good faith bargaining provisions, but it'll certainly be enough for the employer to then submit during the arbitration process, look, we're only here because of the unreasonableness of the union. Had they been reasonable and engaged like any normal participant to a negotiation, then we probably wouldn't be here. And we urge you, Fair Commission, to take that into account in setting these conditions. That's just one example, but you can see how, I mean, there are some of these factors that can be used to advantage when you're dealing with uh, unreasonable participants in the bargaining. And vice versa, it'll apply to employers as well who perhaps might be seen to be acting unreasonably in the process. Yeah, and I think part of that will also be, here's here's the call to arms for the business case to actually invest in bargaining in a kind of project management style regime and actually really spending the time before bargaining begins to get things right. Yes, which is a beautiful segue to uh, (laughs) the final section of our podcast, which is really, what are our tips for how employers should engage with this new regime and what planning should be done to best set employers up for success in the new world of intractable bargaining. So Drew, we might start with you. If you had to sort of narrow it down to your top three tips, what would they be? I think number one, claim development. If you don't have a clear line of sight to what your claims are going to be and why, you're dead in the water um, before bargaining has even begun. So really understanding Um, what you can do within the bounds of your existing um, agreement and terms and where you need to shift that to achieve a business outcome. So really kind of getting into the nuts and bolts of on a day-to-day basis when we're on the shop floor, we're kind of working away, how is the agreement actually stopping us? Because I think the Commission is going to expect employers to have done this work and they're not going to accept uh, a position that you well, you can't do it when the words in the agreement indicate that you can. Um, yeah. So I think number one is is claims development. Um, and I think that you really need to approach that from two perspectives, don't you? It's, it's, it's the claims development in favour of the employer. What does the employer want to achieve? But also, what is their position in response to the claims Correct. being put, put by the union and ensuring that there's proper evidence-based justification of those positions? Yeah. I think, in my experience, that's the point that could have been done better, I think, by many employers in, in the past. And now there's, there's really nowhere to hide if you don't have that good, sound, objective, evidence-based yeah. reasoning for your positions, both proactive and reactive, then you're going to be exposed to the Fair Work Commission because simply yeah. saying, well, we can't afford that claim. I mean, everyone says that, but that won't cut it. We need to dig deeper. What would be the consequence That's right. of accepting that claim from the union? What, be, what would be the operational consequence of not getting the claim that the employer is advancing? And what impact does that have on the broader business by reference to data and evidence? Now, that's ultimately what you have to do in the commission. That's right. If you're arbitrating this, you'll, you'll need to need that evidence. Yeah. Will need to be need to be led. So 
I mean, the position I've been adopting on this is you're better off actually having that position clear ahead of bargaining because you can then drop it in at the bargaining table when <coughs> debating these claims. That's right. And you can use it in the 240 process and have everything sort of ready and help you point to the reasonableness of the bargaining, respective bargaining positions when you're in the arbitration process. So it's it's that earlier claims development. I agree with that, Drew. That's an excellent point. Um, And then the second is really kind of plotting out your tactical considerations. When are you going to make concessions? What is the basis that those concessions are being made? Is it that's agreed, you know, full stop? Is it, it's agreed, this is agreed if we can achieve this outcome elsewhere in the agreement, Mm. you know? So yes, it's agreed, but there's a condition on that so that when you're working through uh, the 240 process, you can be explaining to the the single member, this is how we've gotten to where we are. And then more importantly, if you end up in the arbitration, you can explain, well, yeah, we were able to make that concession over here on the basis that this is what we understood we were going to get in this part of the agreement. And if that doesn't come off, then it opens the whole lot back up. Yeah, meaning it doesn't go in as an agreed term, it is then up for arbitration. That's right. Which raises, the other point we were debating earlier, Drew, is the practice of sometimes just putting in a footnote in response to every claim, this is subject to agreement on all matters or something like that. I mean, is that going to be enough, do you think, or does it maybe depend? Look, I think ultimately all of these things will depend my gut feeling is that it's not going to be enough. We're going to need to be more specific. Um, it, this is really moving bargaining from being, you know, an industrial process that is a bit mm. rough around the edges and everything else to being a much more technical commercial style of negotiation, mm. um, which, you know, we see through the, uh, the Fair Work Act more generally that things are becoming stricter. The commission has higher expectations, particularly of larger employers and the unions, uh, to actually be approaching these things on a more commercial uh, negotiation kind of uh, approach. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and even if technically the commission forms the view that that's enough for it to not be an automatic agreed claim, mm. it'd certainly be a very weighty factor Absolutely. in then arbitrating the claim yeah. if the employer yeah. was <laughs> happy with it in bargaining subject to everything else. Yes. Um, it might be quite hard to then shift the dial on that in the arbitration process. So, Um, And then I think the third, which really is weaved through the first two, is the capacity of the uh, employer to tell the story. You know, this is where we've come from. This is where we're trying to get to. This is why we need to get there. Ultimately, um, tying that back to the objectives of the Fair Work Act and, you know, our whole current reform regime, which is all about creating more secure employment and better paying conditions for employees in the face of rising costs of living and the like. I think being able to tell your story with that kind of um, evidentiary uh, substantiveness to it um, is going to be important. And I think we're going to see, you know, a lot more expert evidence being laid around, you know, impacts on a particular industry sector and those types of things as reasons for the need for change in bargaining by employers. Yeah, I agree. But, and also more rigorous uh, record keeping of how claims progress yeah. at the bargaining table and the conduct of the bargaining participants in relation yeah. to those claims. That that requires work as well, doesn't it? Some yeah, rigor in it sure does. Trying to note it all down. <laughs> it's, it's not an easy process. Yeah. So Rowan, your top tips? 
Uh, look, there's a little bit of overlap, but if, if I had to keep it to top three, I'd start with using the good faith bargaining requirements where necessary. Mm-hmm. Um, it's something that feels like it's dropped off the radar yeah. a little bit when it comes to bargaining strategy and tactics of late, but the good faith bargaining obje- uh, requirements achieve two things in this context. One is if you use them well, you can actually encourage better negotiated outcomes. Mm-hmm. Because take the example of, of the union who is hard bargaining that I gave before, you might not be getting uh, responses from them on claims in a timely way. Yeah. You might be getting responses, but you might not be getting uh, reasons for those responses, or they might not be engaging with you at all. Now, all of that behavior is, in my experience, quite common at the bargaining table, and often it's just let go. Yeah. If you use the good faith bargaining requirements to actually call that behavior out, require a response to particular positions and claims. And in requiring that response, require justification of that response. What are your reasons for rejecting that claim out of hand? We want to understand those things because it might unearth some information about the broader objectives of the union that might enable us to come up with a compromise or look at an alternative solution. And um, by actually using that, maybe if you need to, threatening an application, Mm -hmm. and maybe on the odd occasion actually making an application, you're actually forcing the union or other bargaining representative to do what they're supposed to be doing, and that is bargaining and engaging with bargaining in the way that the Act envisaged, and there are very clear rules as to how that's come about. Yeah. So that, that's the first benefit of that. And I think on that point, it's mm. it's not going to be enough for a union to just say, well, the employees don't like it. No. It's, it, it's holding both sides to the same kind of level of... Rigour. Rigour, mm. reasoning, rationale. Yep. No, that's right. So the first benefit of that is it might actually push bargaining forward. Yeah. And who knows, maybe I'm being a bit optimistic, but sometimes it actually results in agreed positions yeah. on matters that people were hard bargaining mm-hmm. on and perhaps overstepping the mark on the good faith bargaining requirements. The second benefit of that in the context of intractable bargaining and workplace determinations is, as we've learned, compliance with good faith bargaining is a factor. Yeah. So if we can... Uh, be rigorous in calling out breaches, not letting them slide like we might have used to, because now there's a very strong likelihood that you might end up in intractable bargaining at the end of this process. Not like the past where the odds Mm. of you doing that are are really slim. Now there's a really good likelihood that you may end up in this place. We need to start calling out this behaviour. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, if the union doesn't engage with it, as sometimes they don't, when you call it out in written correspondence, you might need to make the application. And all of those things will go, I think, uh, quite far in yeah. bolstering your position at the workplace determination yeah. stage. So that's number one, uh, Drew, of, of my tips. Uh, number two is, we've already touched on this, but it's the objective evidence-based positions for employer claims, but also responses to union claims. And that needs to happen not just when you receive the directions and listing for the (laughs) workplace determination. I think it's a bit late and certainly wasted work at that point. Absolutely. I think if we front end that preparation and engage in a more rigorous process when we're actually formulating claims pre-commencement of bargaining, then you're going to be able to use that objective justification, the data, when you're tabling the claims, when you're debating and negotiating them at the bargaining table, when you're dragged into the 240 conciliation, which is a step in the process. There's so much value that can be drawn from more uh, in-depth thinking and analysis on why the employer's position is a 2% per annum wage increase. Why? Why not 2.5? Why not 5? Why can't we entertain the rostering proposal that's being put by the union? What would happen if we did operationally? 
That's right. I think that, that's an area where there's uh, significant room for improvement, I think, in, in uh, respect of many negotiations, and one that I think you'll, you'll see some really tangible benefits if employers engage in that type of planning. Which then brings us to final tip, Drew, is, is really communications and engagement, which is, you know, it's a common one. We often talk about this in bargaining, yeah. but so much more crucial now in this new world how are we going to communicate and engage with uh, not just employees, but, but unions? And that's in the context of the point I made at the very start of this episode. The objective now is to convince workforce and unions and other bargaining representatives that the deal being proposed by the employer is better than what they could reasonably expect to get from the Fair Work Commission. That is a task, and that requires a different approach to the past and some really uh, strong investment in the communications and engagement process with workforce and unions. But it'll be fairly easy, I think, in a sense, mm. provided you've done that planning that I referred to before. If you've got That's really right. objective-based position, positions, then you should be talking to people and unions about them and explaining them, yeah. and that will help. Um, I, I shouldn't have said easy, perhaps. When it comes to <laughs> communications easy and, and engagement and, strategy. Yep. Maybe easier. Um, but investment in that area, really, because that's plan A, isn't it? It's getting agreements voted Absolutely. up, avoiding intractable bargaining. Yeah. It should never be the objective. Yeah. The objective is to get agreements over the line in the first step. So that's where the investment should go. So um, I think that's it with our top six tips, Drew. Yeah. There's probably a few more that we could cover <laughs> if we had the time, but I think we've reached time. So um, there are our views on the new intractable bargaining regime. It's clear in our view that the jurisdiction is going to be heavily utilised, certainly more than 11 workplace determinations Absolutely. In, in 13 plus years. And it's also clear that those that invest in planning for this are going to do much better than those who don't. So um, really appreciating the differences in the enterprise bargaining dynamic now as compared to the old regime will hold employers in good stead. So we hope, hope you find those bargaining tips useful. And as always, we'd love to hear any feedback on this episode of Inside IR. Feel free to comment on LinkedIn, send us a direct message, or send an email to insideir at hsf.com. Otherwise, until then, we look forward to seeing you on our next episode of Inside IR.